And welcome to episode number 16 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. Podcast. I see, Sheen, that we now are hovering around 500 downloads to the podcast. Did you see that today? Yeah, yeah. We're getting pretty close to the, the big numero 500. Yeah, that's excellent. So a big thanks to everybody out there who's been listening. And also thanks to you, Shane. You're the really the creator of the podcast and the curator. You're curating these podcasts. So uh, we're just a couple amateur astronomers. And uh, that means we like to look at the universe and share what we love about it with uh, everybody out there listening. So it's really been a lot of fun. Yeah, agreed. Thank you to everybody. Thank you to you, sir. And uh, let's keep doing it. I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah, our little pandemic project. So uh, this week, I only got out and looked at the planets with my binoculars for about five minutes because the, the skies during the day have been cloudy. But I understand that you've actually been able to get out and do some observing this week, uh, even with the nighttime clouds. What have you been up to? Well, um, yeah, the nighttime clouds have been not so good. And if it hasn't been cloudy, it's been almost gale force winds here, it seems, uh, the last week. Um, but I was, so I was on vacation all last week, not having to uh, do my work from home. Um, but due to, you know, pandemic restrictions, not really going anywhere. Uh, I was fortunate that the one day that we had this week where it was clear and no wind, uh, I was able to take out my solar telescope into the backyard and uh, get a few hours of solar observing in, which I haven't done for a while. So that was fun. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but, you know, just so people know, like if you're not familiar with uh, solar observing, never go and look at the sun. You will go blind, severely damage your eyes. Um, Shane is somebody who is an expert solar observer. If you do want to learn how to observe the sun, I would suggest finding somebody that knows what they're doing learn from them or, uh, you know, some other means of that nature. Don't just take our advice uh, and do not go and look at the sun uh, unless you really know what you're doing. So what were you looking at uh, the sun with exactly? So um, there's a few ways to look at the sun. Um, one is uh, white light filters, um, which is not what I was doing. Um, now, white light filters are great for sunspots um, and some other minor detail, but they don't, they don't show a lot. Um, so I don't even, I used to have some white light filters, but I no longer do. Um, so the other common form of solar observing for amateurs is uh, hydrogen alpha telescopes is what they're referred to as. Uh, the two main manufacturers of them are Lunt and Coronado. Um, I think there's a few others out there too. So, uh, you know, I apologize for not mentioning others, but uh, the two I mentioned are the kind of the common ones that you'll find. And so I have a, a 50 millimeter aperture Lunt hydrogen alpha. Now this, this telescope, that's all it's good for is the sun. Uh, you can't observe the night sky. You can't look at birds with this thing, only the sun. And it's extremely, uh, like as far as solar observing goes, it's probably the safest way to do it. Um, it's a dedicated it's it, it has a bunch of dedicated filters to only allow certain wavelengths of light pass through to your eye. Um, and it does so in a, a fairly safe way. And they're, um, they're very strange looking telescopes because like when you, when we think of a telescope, I think of like the long skinny tube with a refractor or a big reflector, like the big sort of cement tubes or some sort of um, beautiful wooden telescope or something. But these, they almost look like a really small, like bare bones spotting scope. Like they're, they're, they look almost like 
you know, don't take any offense. I know they're pretty expensive, but they kind of look someone like someone took a paper towel tube and painted it white. <laughs> I mean, they're yeah. like that size. Yeah, they're tiny. Um, and, you know, two reasons, like the sun is fairly large in the sky. It's about the same size as a, a full moon. And it's so bright, you don't need a lot of aperture. You know, telescopes for the night sky, uh, you want them to, in some cases, you want them to be as big as possible to gather as much light as possible. Uh, because, you know, galaxies and nebula, uh, some of them are, are quite dim and you need that aperture in order to see them. But totally different game with the sun. Uh, you know, you, you just, you don't need the aperture. And then the the actual lens. I mean, it's it, they're a strange looking lens. I believe if I'm calling if I'm recalling correctly, they're either like a very deep, like orangey reddish sort of color, aren't they? And they're very they look like they're really thick. Yeah, yeah, they're they are a little different. And so there's the the lens, like kind of within the telescope. But then the other specialized gear is the diagonal. It's not a, a common diagonal. They're called blocking filters. And they, you know, I don't know all of the engineering behind it all, but they also take out a lot of the, the harmful light and, and only allow your eye to see, uh, you know, a very narrow wavelength of light. Yeah, I mean, it's really, really amazing. Um, you know, I had, I had one on loan for, for a number of months once, and it's, uh, it's really neat. I do like them a lot because these type of telescopes, like you said, are extremely safe because they're dedicated solar telescopes. So, you know, there's no uh, opportunity for... Uh, as much mishap, although of course, you know, even the safest instrument in in uh, the hands of uh, an individual who doesn't know what they're doing can still uh, present some dangers. But uh, these ones are really, really neat because you know one of the first things that I noticed in looking through these versus the white light. Well, when you look at a white light solar image, like when I use my telescope, I just put uh, looks like a um, it's really hard to describe. Looks like a piece of mylar, but I know it's not mylar or almost like tinfoil or something like that. But um, there are blocking filter that block 99.9% of the solar rays. But it gives you this very white um, view of the sun, maybe a little bit orangish, depending on, on the filter that you go with. Um, and then with that, you just really see the sunspots. But it's like pretty much like a blank disc. And then you see some, some of the dark uh, features on it. But with uh, these specialized solar telescopes, the hydrogen—they're hydrogen alpha, correct? Is that what is that what they are? They are, yeah. Well, yeah. the mo you can get some calcium Ks, I think, right. which you know are blue. But uh, the common ones are hydrogen alpha. The common ones are yeah. And with these, though, the view of the sun is more like this reddish orange, correct? Yes, uh, yes, it is. Yeah. And then the yeah. other thing that you can see with these so well is you can see the. Uh, solar flares if there are any flares occurring on the solar rim ah i have to correct you oh uh, the prominences prominence uh, sorry yes yes the flare is a, a brightening of uh you know on, on the surface and they're pretty rare to see you, you have to be looking in the right place at the right time to see those okay so but yes prominences kind of look like you know fingerlings of you know i always describe it as kind of flamey lava stuff coming off of the surface of the sun and and like you said you see it around the edge and they're stunning and they're, thanks for correcting me by the way because i am not a solar observer like i think probably 80 percent of the solar observing that i've done has been through your telescope so <laughs> When you're yeah. there telling me exactly what I'm looking at, um, which is a lot of fun. And then the other thing that that I noticed uh, quite a bit when when we're doing that is that um, you can see what's called like the fecula, I think it's called, like the little um, undulations like all over the sun. Like you can see it's sort of almost like boiling away. 
Yeah, yeah, a lot of granulation. Granulation, it, yeah. It, it looks like, almost like oatmeal is kind of a way that I like to describe it. Mm. Um, and it was very prominent uh, Tuesday when I was observing. You could see a lot of that. Um, but the prominences is what blew me away. Um, I don't know if I've ever counted more in one, at one time on the sun. There is 18 of these things at various points all around the edge of the sun. And what's neat about these prominences is they're always different. Um, they, they're unpredictable and they evolve. So they kind of can change as you're observing. Now, usually not second by second. Uh, and how I like to observe the sun is I'll set up my telescope, say in the morning, I'll spend maybe 15 to 30 minutes observing all of the prominences and then, you know, trying to take in some of the detail within those prominences. And then I'll come back almost every hour and just see how they've changed or if they've changed. Yeah. And quite often they will change throughout the day. Um, but there was one in particular that was just a, was just a wild shape. Uh, it looked like it was kind of like a, some of the, the prominence was coming off and then twisting and then falling back within the sun. But it had to be, oh gee, I think at least the size of Jupiter just based oh, wow. on the scale of uh, sunspots that I've observed that are Jupiter sized, yeah, uh, which is incredible to think, you know, when you're, when you're looking at the sun through the telescope, it doesn't look like anything large. Cause again, it looks like about the same size as the moon. But then when you start to apply some of that context in terms of how big Jupiter is to, in comparison to the sun, it's, uh, it's really quite amazing um, to, to watch. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty cool. And I think, like you were saying, these prominences, they kind of look like a very slow, like when you think of like that lava eruption on a volcano, it looks, and I never thought about that before, but you're right, that's exactly what it's looked like when we've been looking through your telescope is that it kind of just sort of erupts up and it's like a big kind of wave of lava almost. And then it slowly might come crashing back down or sort of move around in slightly different ways. Eh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, of, of the 18 that were out there, a number of them were quite small. Um, I don't know if they would have grown or developed over a couple of days, but there is quite a few that were fairly significant in size and also like unique in structure. Um, so I just had a great time uh, taking a look at the sun. And I think I mentioned it on one of the other podcasts we did, but when solar, the, one of the things that I love about solar observing is you can just sort of work it into your day when you're doing errands in the yard. Um, and you don't, you don't get tired, you know, you're just up anyway. So it's kind of a neat way to extend the hobby. Although I, I remember <laughs> the, the first time I ever did solar observing like this, I, I was observing, um, with somebody in Halifax when I lived there and, and, and we got sunburns cause of course you're, you're still thinking in the context of doing astronomy and typically we go do astronomy we're, we're not putting sunscreen on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And have to have to watch it for that. I think at one point, one of the manufacturers of the solar telescopes was kind of giving away like, like those hats with kind of like the desert um, thing that comes down the back of them to kind of keep uh, them off your neck. Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the a couple key things if you ever do solar observing, especially with hydrogen alpha, don't wear your, your sunglasses, because that's going to cut back on some of the detail that you see. But have like a brimmed hat or use your hand to shield your eyes. Cause even like just that ambient light coming in from the sun while you're looking into the eyepiece can kind of cause some weird reflections. And um, it's nice to just shadow your eye a little bit and, and you'll improve your viewing a lot. So one thing I see, like, you know, I, 
just in in the browsing of you know uh, used telescope ads and that sort of thing is I see dedicated uh, like solar observing eyepieces. Now, do you use any of those or do you just use regular eyepieces or, or what are you putting in your solar telescope, Shane? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, yeah, I think Coronado and Lunt actually both make uh, what they call dedicated solar observing eyepieces. And I think their claim is that they resolve uh, that hydrogen alpha light a little bit better and have fewer reflections. Mm. Um, I have looked through some of those eyepieces and in my opinion, just mine alone, is that um, they're really comparable to a plossel. Yeah. Um, like they're not, I don't believe they actually do much for you. I wonder. They kind of look, yeah. that's what they look like to me, but I don't know. I've never looked through one. What what I have found is um, two things, uh, and you you hear this term minimum glass referred to a lot in astronomy uh, for especially like the planetary observers. Uh, so minimum glass means simple eyepieces with very few glass elements in there, um, and the idea is that there's less reflections and you just you get the purest view possible, which yields the most contrast possible, which is what you want for planetary observing. Uh, so like, you know, orthoscopics uh, uh, and plossels even are, you know, somewhat desirable amongst planetary observers because they are minimum glass eyepieces. Uh, things, you know, wide-angled eyepieces or zoom eyepieces have multiple glass elements in there and would not be a minimal glass eyepiece. And I certainly have noticed that the minimal glass stuff works better in hydrogen alpha. Um, I think it does. I love using my orthoscopics. I have used like some panoptics, which are, you know, wide field eyepieces with, I don't even know how many elements. Usually I think wide fields are probably anywhere from six to eight or more yep. elements. Um, I have some really nice zoom eyepieces, which I've used in my solar observing. Uh, and I always come back to the orthoscopics. They just, they, they just have a nicer view. There's mm. less internal reflections. Um, one thing I'm going to test this summer, I've looked a little bit in the past, but haven't come to my own conclusion, uh, is using an older style of eyepiece called a Kellner. Um, many people online, like on cloudy nights, which we often refer to, uh, many people there uh, claim that Kellners provide a really, really good solar view on axis uh, when using hydrogen alpha. So I do have a couple of older Kellner eyepieces that are um, quite good quality. You know, I want to test them against my orthoscopics just to see how they look. Cool. So um, quick question. All right. So do you still have your Bino viewer? And if so, or I know you had it for a while anyway, if you don't have it anymore. Um, do you ever try that for the solar obs observing in your hydrogen alpha telescope? So I no longer have it. Uh, the Bino viewer has been sold. And uh, so the solar telescope that I've had for a long time, you can't Bino view with it very easily. Oh, okay. Uh, I would have had to purchase a whole bunch of adapters and I just was not wanting to do that. Um, but you know, so I sold the Bino viewer just because I, I didn't like the views through it. I'm probably in the minority, but it really does cut the light coming into your eye. Yeah. And um, it's certainly more comfortable to view with two eyes and looking at the planets was interesting and fun. But what, what sealed the deal for me was I was looking at Saturn one night, uh, started with the Bino viewer, and I thought it was strange that I couldn't see Titan. It's, you know, largest and brightest moon. Yeah. And um, no big deal. I kept observing... Uh, Saturn and I thought I'm going to go to mono viewing so put put one eyepiece in got rid of the bino viewer and Titan just popped out 
Uh, it was there. I couldn't believe it. So I put the Bino viewer back in and then I did notice Titan, but it was, it was a lot like the, the brightness of it was really reduced. So was this and, in your, um, sorry, but, but was this in your, uh, 120 mil Skywatcher or? Yes. Yes, okay. it was. Yeah. Yeah. I was really surprised at that. So that was the, like I say, that, that convinced me I, I'm just not a Bino viewer, but if there was a case to have one, um, hydrogen alpha viewing and, and probably lunar viewing would be incredible. Yeah. Nope. Sorry. Never, never did it. Huh. Cool. Cool. Well, anything else about the solar observing that you, or any other obs observations that you were making this week? That is all I was able to get in this week. Unfortunately, I, I had dreams of some <laughs> evening viewing, but, uh, the weather just did not work out. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, I get, I get another package this week, so I haven't actually opened yet. I just, like, like I was telling you before we went live, I've just been busy with a variety of things at, at work. I'm taking a couple days off uh, this coming week, Monday and Tuesday. So kind of plan to uh, kind of open up. It's a bit of a grab bag. So my, my rings are supposed to be in there. Uh, get a contrast booster in there, like you were telling me about the, the contrast booster. And I get a bag for my 100 millimeter telescope that I bought last month. And let's see what else is in there. I guess it's, is it just those three things? Might be something else. I can't remember. I kind of ordered them all and then it shipped really fast and it got to Canada like in 24 to 30 hours. And then it sat over in Winnipeg for almost a week. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a little yeah. bit of a, little bit of a wait for that one there. But uh, anyway, I got it here now and I just got to kind of pop the box open. So, so we'll see. We'll see. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So, but what I've been doing this week is, and, and, I, and we also talked a little bit about this earlier on was that uh, I've, uh, I've, I was working some with Randall uh, Rosenfeld, who was uh, doing the truth at the eyepiece presentation for the RESC Canada. And if you go to RESC Canada on YouTube, uh, you can actually see his presentation of which I was basically a supporting actor in this. <laughs> so the original plan was that there would be this, this panel. And I've done some of these panels with, with Randall before Randall and I go way back. And uh, I was, I was like, great. You know, there's, there's a mutual friend, Judy, who's at Calgary. She usually sits on it with us and, you know, a variety of other people, like really a bunch of experienced people. Everybody has like their own sort of expertise. Like Judy's an anthropologist, uh, professor emeritus, I believe. And, um, you know, other individuals like that. So it's a lot of fun, a lot of different people um, with diverse backgrounds that bring a lot of different perspectives to the table. But for whatever reason, I know they're, they're really kind of trying to work out some of the kinks in that with how they do these really big Zoom meetings. And that was the biggest Zoom meeting I was on. Like they had, had made accommodation for over 170 people on it. And wow. so I was like, like, I thought there was going to be like 15 or 20 people attending this thing. So I really, you know, was like, whatever, I do lots of Zoom meetings. I've taught some classes over Zoom now, um, you know, upwards of a few dozen people. But then I was like, hundred. I think they said there was 172 or 178 or something. It's like, sure. what? <laughs> this is, and then like, I see the people joining, like the meeting, <laughs> and it's like, Alan Dyer and you know people like that right I'm like oh man like you know these these people are all better amateur astronomers than I am so, so hopefully <laughs> can I can be intimidating yeah. yeah I kind of so hopefully I can add something to it so but but Randall and I we go way back and 
he kind of gave me a bit of the Coles notes on what he was what he was going to do. But we didn't really sync it up much as we do these presentations. We don't we don't spend too much time chatting about them beforehand. And so he did his presentation, and then what I did is I did a bunch of of research, which I, I've kind of had in the works anyway. And uh, to make a long story short. Uh, Randall often sends me like required readings kind of thing and then sometimes I do them and some of them I, I don't and he'll he'll just send me books in the mail like sometimes I'll just get a random book in the mail because he's like you really need to read this <laughs> okay <laughs> anyway and then uh, this kind of kind of pushed me to read uh, the book on uh, perception and illusion and planetary observing by uh, Sheehan which was put out in 1988 excellent book by the way um, and he sent that one to me about three years ago. It was like sitting on my shelf. And I'll tell you, like, sometimes I find like the old musty books. Like if I sit and read them inside, they kind of start to bother my allergy. It's not that bad, but you know, like, I mean, I think you, you suffer more from the snow mold than I do, but it's kind of like that sort of thing. But this one actually wasn't too bad. So, um, but it's nice when the summer comes along and I can kind of sit out and read it, then it's, it's no problem. Else. I mean, I've been doing that quite a bit, but, uh, anyway, you talked a lot about, uh, uh, Eugene Etienne Truvelo and his 1880s lithographs and he put out these these 15 lithographs which are these beautiful paintings that he said were very accurate and representative of of the planets and some of the deep sky objects like uh, I think the Swan Nebula and the Andromeda Galaxy were in there and sunspots and Jupiter and the moon and all kinds of different things some aurora I think were in there as well um, and then Randall kind of gave a talk about um, like how how accurate were these and why wasn't there any sort of uh you know critical review of them because they weren't um they were very much like in my opinion these are my words i said they're they're like caricatures of uh, of jupiter for example and then um you know we had some discussion with uh with all the people that were that were attending the session online i don't know how many there were because the way they do their zoom uh sessions with the RAC, they like I have a, a pro account or something like that. And I, I guess just haven't played around with it enough, but like typically like if we had other people joining our session, we would be able to see them and I could like let them enter our session or whatever, um, you know, and that would be fine. And then we could kind of communicate back and forth. But with that, they just put everybody in a waiting room and then they brought them in, but I never, I couldn't see the whole group, maybe like the administrator could, and I'm guessing that's what it was, but it was, it was a little bit different, but it's really cool. So, um, if people want to check that out, they can just go to RASC Canada on YouTube and just look for the presentation with Randall. Um, and then I play a very, a very small role, sort of make a few comments in particular about, uh, you know, astro sketching. And we got into a discussion at the end about uh, uh, maybe the pressure that uh, Truvelo felt on, uh, on trying to compete with uh, astro imaging and astro photographs that were making their appearance. Uh, at that time. So do you know much about Truvelo, Shane? I don't, I don't, but this, uh, this YouTube is looking very interesting to me. Uh, yeah, so yeah. you're checking it out. Yeah, so Truvelo, and we didn't talk too much about this, although I, I make some sort of snide reference to it. Um, he is sort of the infamous, infamous, I think. He's the infamous person who uh, brought the gypsy moth inadvertently to North America, where, <laughs> and the story is, so you're familiar with the gypsy moth, probably. A little bit. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, so most, most people are. It's, it's really bad in places out east. Uh, and I think even here in some places I, I've heard it can be bad. Um, and they're actually spraying for the moths this week here in Regina, so it's very topical. Um, but uh, what had happened was one way or another, and it seems like 
I mean, there seems to be kind of two renditions, um, but it seems rather accidental that uh, he ended up uh, getting the, the uh, seed pods for the gypsy moths, uh, and they end up blowing out his window one way or another, and, and uh, that, that's how they kind of came to infect our ecosystem here in, uh, in North America. Oh. But he was uh, an amateur uh, botanist, and he was very distraught at this um, and realized uh, what it would do, but he couldn't convince anybody at the time that it was going to be this, this big problem and everybody was like, eh, what's the big deal kind of thing. And it was sort of after he had, you know, passed away many years after this, that they actually did become uh, a problem. But by that point they were just like way out of control. So the sort of horse had left the barn, unfortunately. So, hmm. yeah. So anyway, it's kind of neat if people look and then want to go and just uh, Google true below and go to the uh, Linda Hall library, they can uh, check those out. Uh, I also began working on my next article for the Journal of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, where I'm the uh, columnist for observing, visual observing, uh, for that journal. And uh, I actually sent you a rough cut of my comparison sketch between my April 21st Venus cloud sketch alongside an image by a French astrophotographer who captured what appeared to be um, the exact same clouds that I had sketched um, about 10 or 12 hours later. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought that that was an excellent comparison. And, you know, with, with challenging objects like Venus, like trying to see that cloud structure, it's so awesome, I think, to be able to sketch the way you did, but then also uh, find a comparison photograph by, you know, somebody who's very skilled at doing that part of the hobby. Um, and then compare, you know, what they captured on the same night, essentially, that you were sketching, right? Um, because then it confirms either you did see something or you didn't. And if it was illusion or bad seeing or whatever. And it was pretty cool to see that you captured some real subtle details in the photograph uh, visually. Um, I thought that was outstanding. Yeah, I thought it was, well, even at the time, even on the 21st, I did that sketch and I took a photo and sent it to you. And I'm like, what? Like... I was kind of buying that I was seeing the clouds up until that point. And then these ones were running in a completely different direction. So all the other ones were more or less running horizontally across the planet, which is what I would have expected. Um, and then these ones were vertical. And I mm -hmm. was like, what is, so then I, I did the sketch. I took a photo of my sketch and I texted it to you. And I'm like, did you see this? And you were like, no, I didn't see that. You're, I don't think you're, your telescope is focused on it or something because they did look kind of strange at the time. And then um, this, uh, this observer uh, or this astro imager, um, he had done the photos in France, which of course is, uh, is behind us in, or whatever in time anyway. So they're, um, or just slightly ahead of us. Anyway, whatever it is, they, uh, uh, they were working about 10 or 12 hours uh, time difference from me. So then they had gone to an image, but they, uh, for whatever reason, you know, probably life and with the pandemic and everything, hadn't gotten around to processing them and putting them up until uh, the week before last. Um, so when I kind of had gone online to sort of check out to see if anybody had done these, I hadn't found any, but then when I did another look uh, last night, I was able to, uh, I was able to find those. So, and they were kind of strange looking clouds because they were sort of sets of two, uh, almost like parallel uh, equal signs that were sort of bent in the middle. And uh, now I joined them together in my image, but I, I mean, I think I got them. What do you think? Like, yeah, yeah. Like I, I think you did it, it, it to me again. Like when you look at the photograph, those features are very, very subtle, even in a photograph that, you know, used a camera, which is far 
you know, greater than our eye for a lot of this type of observing um, and then processed, I'm sure, in some regard. Uh, so in, to, to be able to pick that out visually um, is, I think, no small feat, especially with a small telescope. <laughs> Did you notice the commonality, though, between my sketch and, and his as far as the instrument went? Oh, no, I didn't. Is that I was using a, a very, I was using the smallest Takahashi, the 60 millimeter, and that individual was using the uh, 250 millimeter Mulan from Takahashi. <laughs> so, you know, like when you said, wow, that's great. I'm like, it's all the Takahashi. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, and, you know, another resource that we'll probably be using to compare our, our visual observations to is there's a person uh, by the name of Chris Goes. Oh, yeah. Chris Go, Chris Go. And uh, he does Jupiter imaging, I think Mars. I think he does them all, actually. He's out of the Philippines. I think he like images from the top of his apartment or condo building or something like that. Yeah, so he does the moon, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And basically, I think if it's clear where he is, he's uh, getting some really good imagery. And then he posts it online. So it's another great resource to just you know compare your visual observations to. Yeah, he is. I don't know that he, he doesn't do Venus, it seems, so does he? He's very no. dedicated to particular objects. No, so he just lists, uh, yeah, Moon, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. It's too bad. It would be nice uh, to to have a, a good Venus resource like that, too. Yeah, now he's the he's the uh, individual who actually discovered the Oval BA a number of years ago on Jupiter, I think. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. I think so. And then they gave him time on the Hubble or one of the big Hawaiian telescopes or something like that. And then my understanding is I could be completely wrong, but he was using like an old, an older Celestron. It might've been a C14 or something to that effect. And then, and I could be completely wrong, but I, I believe, I think Celestron like gave him a new one. Yeah. I'm just looking. He's got, uh, I think he's using it. He's got an astrophysics 130 and AP 130. He oh, does wow. have a C14, a yeah, C11. C 14 was one, one of those I think was from, from Celestron because they were like, we just got to give this guy, I think they like, gave him a telescope or something. I could be wrong though. Wow. That, that would be a nice story anyway. I think it might yeah. be on the website somewhere. Cause I, I used to go there quite a bit, but I haven't been there in a, in a number of years. But uh, you know, I know we've talked a lot about the Venus observations and somebody listened, a friend of mine listened to the, he's like, man, you guys are like always talking about Venus or whatever. But um, you know, one of the points is, is that it takes a lot of effort to make uh, sort of one of these deep dive observations. <laughs> like you're, we're not just going out and plunking the gear down or not just going out and plunking the gear down and then seeing uh, clouds on Venus. That, that will never happen. Um, it's, uh, it's a combination of getting the, the gear working, getting the right gear working just a certain way, uh, making the observations, um, you know, doing good observations, sketching, um, and then like afterwards, uh, and sometimes during doing, doing research, but a lot of my research, like in this case, it's, it's all afterwards because, uh, you try not to sort of pollute yourself, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with what you're reading because you, you know, if you read, like I, like I used to read so many, uh, books and articles on Venus that would say, you can't really see much. You can see this, or you can see that, but you can't see cloud tops or it's very difficult to see it, but, um, just kind of have it in you to, to approach that eyepiece without, uh, you know, without any sort of preconceived notions. Like I was reading, took a look at uh, the Backyard Astronomer's Guide this afternoon about Venus. There's, there's some good stuff there about dichotomy and, uh, 
you know, that, that's sort of the 50% phase of Venus. But I think they spend half of the article telling you how difficult it is to see anything on Venus, right? So um, there is a lot of discourage, discouraging uh, advice at the start of any kind of, you know, well, before you'll see anything, just know you're not going to see anything. And then honestly, I can't even remember if I ever even read any more of the Venus article because you read that much and you're just like, well, what am I, why am I wasting my time even reading this on something that is just going on and on and on telling me how I'm not going to see anything anyway. So. Yeah. You know, and I kind of compare it to like, you know, eating food throughout the year. My wife and I love corn on the cob, but we only have it in the summertime when it's in season. And then we'll probably have it for a few weeks or however long. And then when winter comes, uh, we, you know, we're done with corn on the cob. And when it comes to some objects in the sky for astronomy, um, I prefer to look at them multiple times while they are in season and record multiple observations, especially for challenging objects like, again, Venus is, um, to confirm what I've seen or to see if there's any evolution in uh, what's going on on the planet. Because some of these things are, are fairly dynamic. Uh, Jupiter is a great example of a dynamic system, uh, you know, in terms of its rotation and how some of the features evolve there too. So I think it's, uh, you know, for my style, I really enjoy looking at one object like this multiple times and, uh, you know, throwing that out there too, just for any of the listeners to maybe understand a little bit why we keep talking about Venus, because <laughs> it's just, it's, it's here, it's in the sky. Uh, probably within the next couple of weeks, we won't be talking about Venus anymore because there's not going to be much to report on. Yeah. You know, you know, it's, 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 it's funny. This is a very funny thing that's happened here. So I do make some notes um, before I do. And I don't know if you do, because we don't go over these before. And you, you made this food analogy with, <laughs> with the corn. I actually also had a food analogy to go with this. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hear it. <laughs> so, uh, but yours was much more eloquent. I, I said that uh, uh, it's more like a visit to the hot dog making factory. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> because... You know, often you hear that people, um, like they'll read about like great observers like Stephen O'Meara or the recently departed Barb Wilson. Um, and they might say like, oh, they must have these special eyes or, you know, these, these fairy dust um, eyepieces or something of that nature. But, you know, really like the basic lesson in us talking about this stuff is that, you know, we're going out, we're not just plunking the telescope down, we're doing a lot of work leading up to it. And this is, in a way, like the talking about that work, right? Like, for example, if, if somebody was listening uh, to this, they can see my process, which started like back in March. You can hear the first episodes where we're talking about going out, kind of preparing. We're talking about equipment, like maybe that seems boring or whatever. But then we talk about some Venus observations. I talk about starting up my sketching of Venus, talk about some other things on Venus. Um, now I'm talking about like starting the article, you know, so you kind of know what what has gone into it. Um, and then probably by the time we do, well, yeah, or probably in two weeks time, I'll have the article finished. Uh, and then I'll probably talk about it once more. And like you say, then uh, won't be back to, to Venus for some time. But then like if if somebody picked up the, the hard copy or the digital version of the journal in the fall and this comes out, um, they would read that and say, you know, they might say, well, that's, you know, how could this person possibly see that? I went out and plunked down my telescope and I didn't see clouds on Venus. But you could like listen to this and go, wow, this person's like boring me to death with the details it takes <laughs> to do that, right? But that's kind of what it takes, this, this long drawn out, months long process to kind of get this all together. 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I don't think we have so far. Like, it, it, that is a great point. Um, while we've talked about some of the detail we've seen in Venus, uh, maybe two things to stress, at least to my eye, when I have seen this stuff, it isn't like super um, apparent that it's there. I spend a lot of time at the eyepiece in one session. And sometimes I only see some of this detail for like a millisecond when seeing, when the seeing just steadies a little bit. So it's not super apparent. And there's been probably more nights where I haven't seen detail on Venus than what I've reported actually seeing detail on Venus. So it is, it is something that if you want to see these clouds and like, I think we've kind of, you know, the season's passed. It, it's, I don't well, the know morning, if see the much morning now. Is coming. The, the evening is done, but morning. You're is right. Coming. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. So, you know, if this is something any of the listeners want to attempt, uh, don't get frustrated if you go out and don't see clouds your first time or first attempt. Uh, but, but you know, don't, um, don't give up. Just keep trying. And I think eventually, you know, on, on periods of good seeing or if you're spending, you know, your entire session just looking at Venus and, and taking in some of those brief moments where the seeing improves, you're probably going to be able to tease out some of that detail. Yeah, and I mean, you know, some of the other things that I'm doing, as you know, like, I'll often go out, set the telescope for five minutes, even if I think the seeing is poor, and then take a look. And then sometimes I know, and I'm experienced enough now to know that this is probably going to persist or would take so long for the sky to settle down. The night is uh, a write-off. So after five minutes, pack the stuff away. Now that I have a few more new pieces of gear coming in, I'm kind of testing it a bit. I'm also um, making sure my gear is working the way I want it to work during um, the sessions that aren't panning out for observation sessions. So I'm like, okay, like, you know, how is this telescope balancing? You know, I've been having some trouble with rings. So all that is kind of taking place in and around my observations. But when I, when I go out and I approach the eyepiece anyway, like about, you know, and, and I try to approach in such a way that I don't know exactly what I'm going to see now with Venus. We know right now, although like we're losing it, you know, I, I don't even know that I can see it from my home anymore. Um, but you go out, you're going to look at it. You're going to see this crescent. That's pretty much it. You're just going to see that crescent. Um, but uh, beyond that, uh, there may be other things you can see. But at least a third of the time, I know I'm at least going to see that crescent. And then a third of the time, maybe I can see some other details that I've seen before. Um, like I know some of the uh, some of those brighter polar areas and and some of that notching at the Terminator um, appears very easy to see. Like I've been able to get my wife looking through the telescope. She's not an observer and I can describe it and she can see that stuff. No question. Um, you know, seeing the challenge around dichotomy where the, uh, the, the crescent, uh, isn't matching up at the 50% phase with when it should. These are things that are relatively easy to see to my eye. And then like the cloud features, this is something I'm getting on like 20 to 30% uh, of the night. So, uh, and they're, they're just the right nights. And then there's some nights, even when you have good seeing and everything and the clouds just aren't there because, uh, you know, there's cycles, uh, on the clouds of Venus, just like we have cycles in our clouds here where, uh, the disc is more uniform and you just don't have them. So sometimes you'll get more, sometimes you get less, sometimes you don't get any at all. So that happens too. Yes, indeed. Uh, I think last podcast we talked about not a, what was your word? It's not a conjunction. It's uh, an applause. An applause. Did you did you observe this uh, this week? No, I think that was yesterday evening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think the last couple of days you could see it potentially, but potentially, like, and I could just walk like because there's big open prairie, a five minute walk away. But I mean, we went out last night. 
Um, I think last night was was probably the best night or one of the better nights. But no, there you like it was unobservable. Um, you couldn't really see much of the sky at all. But uh, yeah, that's just yeah. times. Yeah, unfortunately, and there was there was even um, oh gee, I think it was two nights ago. It was it, like overhead there wasn't any cloud, but like in the west where yeah. you know where you would observe this, probably about. 30 degrees up from the horizon you Big know that sense. entire bound yeah. was just cloud and it wasn't leaving so yeah, yeah unfortunately i didn't see it either and then and i didn't even know that I mean, you, you could that was like one of those nights you could have wasted a lot of time driving around you and i've had a lot of those nights yeah. together <laughs> because yeah. there was actually you know and i know that uh, your house is similarly situated but you're on the other side of the city that i am but on my side uh, which is i think about 15 or 20 kilometers or miles to your east um, there was actually cloud to the east. So I think you, if you even drove far enough to try to get that clear band, I, I don't know that you wouldn't be under the, like the geometry on it looked just right. Cause I was looking at it going, yeah, I think this is just not worth going to, to drive around to try to sort this out. And yeah, like I said, you can, you can run a lot of fool's errands trying to see these things. And then it's just like, well, we'll just, Wait for the next one. There's there's lots of opportunities coming up, but hopefully people uh, were able to go and uh, and take a look. So yeah, is there anything else to add, Shane, to this wonderful episode on uh, solar observing and Venus observing and me talking about making hot dogs and you talking about eating corn? Uh, no, uh, you know I'm good. Maybe just need a snack. Yeah, yeah, I know now I'm hungry. So I should have bought those hot dog buns I was looking at yesterday. But, uh, you know, I look forward to next week. Next week, we're going to talk about um, the observations uh, that could be made in June and go through uh, the upcoming events for that month. And I know we had a lot of downloads. I think like, like a, a, I think a quarter of our downloads or more were people that were listening to the objects to observe in, in May. So that's great. You know, really good. And I look forward to doing the one for June as well. Yeah. Yeah. Can't wait. All right. Excellent. Well, we'll talk to you soon, Shane. Thanks, Chris. Bye. All right. Bye.